You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. So we've been walking through this gospel of Matthew, the, the first book of the New Testament, the first gospel. Many of the questions I know that will probably come to mind will, will gradually over the course of the next year or so be answered as we get introduced to Jesus through Matthew. Matthew, who was in many ways a traitor to his people, an outcast. He became a, a tax collector under the employment of the occupying Roman Empire, turned on his own people to start to take money off of them. And yet we find at a turning point in the gospel of Matthew that Jesus calls to him and says, follow me says to the outcast, join me. And we saw that last week, right? Last week we saw in the genealogy of Jesus something powerful. We saw who Jesus came from so that we would begin to understand who Jesus came for, right? In, in the list and the genealogy of Jesus are, are in many ways sinful, broken people, right? In that, in that genealogy are, are, are prostitutes, people who are outcasts, people with, with, with lives marked by scandal, murder, adultery, this is all in the family tree of Jesus. And, and, and we see that Jesus, in a very clear way, as Matthew tells us, identifies with those people. And we would know that when we see where Jesus comes from, we would see who Jesus came for. This is a quote roughly given to Jerome in the fourth century, paraphrasing here that Jesus ultimately was born into a dung heap because that's where he knew he would find us. And so the story of Jesus that Matthew is presenting for us is one that we will ultimately hear and see him as Lord over all, such that even the last verses of the entire gospel go like this. Jesus, having resurrected from the dead, says to his disciples, Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I want you to see where Matthew's taking us, the, the trajectory from the beginning of, of his humble birth all the way to the end and his last words as Matthew records here and his, and as he was on earth, are that he has authority over everything. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Now, what is he going to do with that authority? Right, That authority that's been granted to him now is to be scattered and shared. He says, go therefore then and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. So I want you to see, like as we walked through the book of Judges some time ago, we're going to begin with the end in mind. In the end, Jesus has all authority. Evidently, what Matthew is going to tell us is Jesus is going to do some things that will allow us to see him for who he really is, such that we would receive that as blessing and pass that blessing on. We would receive that as a new way of life, literally a disciple, a new way of being, and we would invite others to experience that new way of being with us. Even people, it says, to the nations, a fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham, as we saw last week, that he would bless Abraham and his people in such a way, not that they would, for their own sake, experience joy, but they would be blessed in such a way that the nations would be blessed. But a turning point takes place in Matthew chapter 16. In many ways, there are either five or seven different sections of Matthew, and the central section, a hinge, looks like this. In Matthew chapter 16, it says, Now when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? 
right? And some said, he's John the Baptist. Some said, he's Elijah, come back, or others, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. But then Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, but who do you say that I am? And this statement upon which the entirety of Matthew's gospel hinges, Simon Peter responds, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, right? You didn't just figure that out. That isn't a math problem or equation that you solved. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but instead my Father who is in heaven. And the entirety from chapter 16 to 18, the entirety of the gospel shifts. Now, I'll point these out when these sections come along. I'll point these out as we get there, but this is one of them. A few verses later, this is how Matthew tells us that everything has turned. He says, from that time, what time, right? From that time where Jesus says, you get it, you see it, you see me as I truly am, the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, the Son of God. And so from that time, Jesus began to show the disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and even be killed and on the third day be raised. So that's where we're going. That's where Matthew is taking us. And I want to take seriously that invitation that you would see Jesus, that you would see him for what he is that you would see him for who he truly is. And, and so uh, as we begin to commemorate like uh, Christians across the centuries in a season of Advent, the arrival or coming of Jesus, I want us to pick up where we left off last week in Matthew chapter 1. We're going to read the second section of chapter 21, beginning in verse 18, concerning the event that makes me say to you, Merry Christmas, right? So I'll start reading in verse 16, so you'll get an idea of where in this story somewhat we pick up, and then we'll read from verse 18 to the end of the first chapter. <clears throat> and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David, David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation of Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man, and willing, unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did 
as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. I want to contend for you today good news that I hope you might receive no matter what brought you into this place or crossed our paths. And that is this. Jesus saves us by coming near to us. Jesus draws close the very presence of God that is near to us. Now, in many ways, the beginning of the story of Jesus is not something that is very highly, like, it's not agreed upon by many people. And I'm speaking of the four gospel writers. Two of the gospel writers say humbug to Christmas. That is, Mark doesn't even tell us about the birth of Jesus. He wants us to know that ultimately what happened that's majestic and powerful is that he is the fulfillment of these promises. And he tells us first about the baptism of Jesus, the anointing of the Holy Spirit as the Son of Man. Right? The one who would fulfill all of the prophecies of Daniel to come riding on the clouds and to, in many ways, equalize all things and make them new in the world. John skips right past this, and, and not in the sense that he skips the birth of Jesus. He skips right past it going backward. And he says, if you really want to know about Jesus, you need to know about the eternal nature of Jesus. That is, that in the beginning was the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and that Word, the thing that God was speaking, was the very nature of God, was with God, and was God. And that Word came flesh. The, the Christian uh, tradition calls this word incarnate, the incarnation, that is quite literally to take on flesh. That God speaking to the world took flesh and became like us and dwelt among us. And in seeing Him, He becomes the light for all of us. Luke, however, at least starts with something like a genealogy at some point, but he wants you to know about the birth of John the Baptist. He wants you to hear about the, the silent father of John the Baptist who didn't believe that John the Baptist really would be born, and then introduces us to Mary. In many ways, tells us the story of the birth from the perspective of Mary. In many ways, leaving out Joseph entirely. But Matthew, Matthew telling us the story of Jesus tells us at least some of the things that you and I celebrate over the Christmas holidays. You'll see many of them next week. But if you'll notice, Christmas for Matthew is a verse, right? It's just a verse, verse 25. And it comes in the phrase of a dependent clause. Did you catch it? Until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. That's it. Merry Christmas. And the story of Jesus' arrival here isn't a story necessarily of the birth of Jesus, but instead the circumstances preceding it, leading up to it, and surrounding it. And so he wants us to know a couple of things. He wants us to tell us about Jesus by telling us all of the, the ways in which preparation was made for the birth of Jesus. And then he wants to show us how this was all according to a scriptural plan. Now, in many ways, this is what Matthew will do for the next 28 chapters. More than any other of the Gospels, more than 50 times, Matthew makes direct quotation of the Old Testament. You saw that one here. Did you see it in verse 23? He quotes the prophet Isaiah. 
And Matthew will do this regularly. And I'll say more about this just in just a moment. But it's his way of saying that the big deal about Christmas, the big deal about the arrival of Jesus, is how it was perfectly planned out, prepared for, and a fulfillment of God's promise. Such that because God is entering into story, into the story in this way, here's, here's a, an affirmation of confession for us to take. That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the third person of the Trinity. I don't know why some of that got capitalized and some of it didn't. Well, my fault. Jesus is the Christ. You see that in the very first verse that we read, verse 16, about the lineage of Jesus. And then in the, even in the very first verse of verse 18 that we see, it's Jesus Christ. Now we have to define a whole lot of words because they, they're reference, remember, and fulfillment of promises that were given to the Old Testament people. And, and, and this is one of them. It's, this is the Greek version, Christos, of, of the Hebrew word Messiah. That is, he is the, the promised anointed one, the chosen one. He is the one, the king. He is the one, as we see here, will save his people from his sin, from, from, from their sin. He will save his people from their sins. He is the Christ. Like, okay, Christ is not Jesus' last name, right? When you say Jesus Christ, that's not just a last name. It's Jesus the Christ, the anointed one. It's a title. A profound title, the highest title that might be able to be given if we read the Old Testament up to this point. And so Matthew doesn't tell us about a manger or an inn or a census. He wants us to know that the amazing thing about Jesus is that he is God. Did you hear that? Here's how Jesus Christ was born. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, God who is spirit, and we worship him in spirit and truth, came to be a baby. And what makes Jesus amazing is that he is God of God. And the amazing thing about his birth is that God, the creator and author of the universe, came to be with us. Matthew says that he came to be like us so that we could be like him. One commentarian poses a question for all of us to consider. It was really helpful as I thought through even how to encourage you with these verses, but Many of us kind of walk around with, a, with an angst or fear or an anxiety under the surface that boils over to the surface more often probably than we want to admit, and it's this. Is this all there is? As we look at our own lives and the things that even we find to be fulfilling and the things that we find to be unfulfilling, is this all there is? Is this it? Is this it? I got, uh, this is my life. This is my influence. This is my name. This is who I am, and this is what I do. Is this, is this all there is? Have you ever felt that way? Because we come to the, uh, each day with that question, is this all there is? Or Matthew offers us another way to frame that. Is this all there is, or is God actually with us? Is this all we've got? Or is the infinite, majestic, and endless God of the universe in our midst. And Matthew tells us that God is with us. God came to be with us as sinners. God saves 
us by coming to be with us. He, becomes, he comes to be with sinners, to be like sinners, and yet miraculously united to them in their very humanity. Jesus saves us by coming to be near us, and Jesus saves you by being like you. Love that in the, in the list of the genealogy we saw last week, right? We see where Jesus comes from to know who Jesus came for. And it's as if to say, like, as you look at the list of the genealogy and you see the, the, the awful stories of scandal, of incest, murder, sexual immorality of all sorts and kinds, like some, some pretty awful, rough people who are pretty terrible in their own right in many ways. And, and it's as if Matthew wants us to be able to say, as we look at our own lineage in Jesus, if, if, if we were to come into the room and Matthew were to say something like, whose is Jesus, right? Like, who does Jesus belong to? All the people with lives of scandal and immorality and brokenness would go, us. He's us. He's with us. Jesus belongs. He's ours. That guy's one of us. Have you heard his story? You see where he came from? And the thing we want to contend for here, Matthew tells us, is that when you begin to see that Jesus belongs to us and is like us, you realize that when you add him to the list, you add him to the story, of us, it changes the story completely. And Jesus changes everything. Put him in a list or room full of sinful, awful people, and the story changes. Because Jesus came as God of very God to be like sinners, miraculously united to us, to be like us so that we would, in some mysterious, gracious way, be like him. I can say this, you can turn to Jesus, you can look to Jesus, you can cry out to Jesus, you can trust in him. Why? Because he's near. He's with us. Think of it this way, the creator and king over the universe has become a human being on earth. So in that very first verse, Jesus, the Christ, the anointed one, we're meant to see this is the king and savior, had a mother, had a mother, but then was miraculously conceived of by the Holy Spirit. He was a child of Mary and yet of the Holy Spirit. The creator and the king over the universe became human. And so just look at what we learned this. The, this is, in many ways, as we saw last week, a new, a, a new story of Genesis. Even starts the book of Matthew this way. The book of Genesis, literally. The book of the, the, gene, the genealogy, literally the book of Genesis. As if to say, no, 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 you've read Genesis before. You think you know how things started. Let me tell you how things started. It started with a list of people, and then bang, Jesus entered in. That's the Genesis. That's the book of beginnings, that Jesus came as the Christ, the anointed one, by the very presence and power of God's Spirit. So that we would see that Jesus has the, the ability to relate to us, to sympathize with us in every single way, Hebrews tells us, and yet the ability, because he didn't come from a sinful human, but by the Holy Spirit, the power and authority to fix what's divinely broken in us. And that new Genesis is, is meant to be a powerful picture for us. And just like, do you remember the first Genesis? What happened? The Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, but what happened? The Spirit of God came in and took dirt, took dirt, and the Spirit of God took dirt and displayed God's very image to be multiplied across the globe. 
The Spirit of God was over the water. It took on dirt, and the first creation was brought, the first of creation brought life and was brought to life. And so also we see in this new and more powerful creation, this new Genesis, the Spirit of God does what? Steps in and takes on flesh so that we would know there was a new Genesis, a new creation, a new beginning. Next we see in verse 19 and 20 that we get a window into the character of Mary and Joseph. Predominantly Joseph here, and he's meant to be an example for us, but he's also meant to be someone we we see and begin to understand Jesus through his very eyes. And we learn a lot about Joseph. We learn that he demonstrates love and care because of his own convictions towards Mary, and even we find by the end of this passage towards his own adopted son, that is Jesus. And God, we see in verse 20, comes to offer comfort and prepare Joseph for the thing that he would have to live through. But look at what we learn about, learn from Joseph. So he was, they were betrothed. Now, this is really hard for us to translate like many other things. We don't do this. We don't typically have arranged marriages. Some people around you think they are, and they, they you know, pat themselves on the back when they think they've played matchmaker. Good luck. I wouldn't, I wouldn't recommend it. Um, but we don't have betrothals, per se, and and so, and so we, we're, we're individualistic by nature, and that's a kind of how we've crafted our culture. And so in that sense, we, we would say a person marries a person by choice or love, right? These other things. And, and, and I get it. I'm not, not going to pick a fight on that particular one. But it means that we typically have like an engagement, right? If you're engaged because these two people have like you know, kind of submitted and committed, hey, we're going to do this, but not quite yet. That's not how betrothal would have worked. You see, for them to be betrothed would have been, a, their first year of marriage, as it were, would have been a betrothal in which at the beginning, Joseph or any other person who wanted to marry someone's daughter would have already paid the bride price. He would have already offered whatever it is that the father of the bride would accept in order to, to win him over such that they would commit to do this. So, so in that sense, notice it even says, this is how you know it's not the same as like an engagement. It says that he resolved to do what? break up with her in verse, in, verse seven, in verse 19? No. He resolved to divorce her. So you get the picture that this is the first phase of marriage in which they are fully committed and divorce would be the end of it, and yet at the same time it's, same time it's not consummated. They haven't physically, sexually come together. And, it, and he tells us that before they've come together, but while they were betrothed, Mary was great with child, found to be with child, pregnant from the Holy Spirit. Verse 19, and her husband Joseph, being a just man, this idea that he has religious conviction, lives by the law, a faithful man. Being that, he was unwilling to put her to open shame. Now, you'll see this in Deuteronomy chapter 22. Joseph could and should have ordered Mary to be stoned for her adultery and unfaithfulness for trespassing the covenant and the commitment that was made, the price that had already been paid to, as a down payment for the commitment of the new life they would experience together. Now, the Jews were under Roman occupation at this particular point, so they can't execute anyone. They don't have the power to, to kill their own. Or they don't have the power to, to give life and take it away. Instead, they have to hand those kinds of people over to the Roman government in order to commit an execution Make a note of that. That's going to be fairly important towards the end of this book, right? And so, so they're not able to do this, but there is a, there's an exception made in the book of Numbers that says that there's a way, instead of to publicly shaming and publicly drawing attention to this woman, Mary, there's a way to kindly and, and mercifully dismiss this person from 
their commitment. But notice, Joseph at that point wouldn't get the bride price back. He wouldn't get anything back. He would just, he'd in that sense, have to just, in mercy, take it upon himself. And so it says he was going to take that option. Because after all, if he publicly shames her, if he publicly uh, draws, this, uh, draws attention to her in this, there's a few things that would have been very, very perilous for Mary. Now, in many ways, this is true even today, but in, in many ways, not. So, like, think of the status of an unwed pregnant teenager, right? Think of it before TV shows were made about this, right? But, like, think of it. That, that's not a status. And if you're in that situation, we love you and care for you, but you would admit that's not a status anyone wishes for. It's not a status in any culture is necessarily exalted or rewarded. It's a tough place to be. Add to the fact, if she had the, this shameful title of adulteress on her, no one would be able to marry her and care for her. She, she, she wasn't able to go out and start a career, maybe like a woman could today. She, she wasn't able to make a living and care for herself and this baby on her own. And the first thing we see here is Joseph's love for Mary and care for her. Not necessarily because of her. It says it's because he actually had conviction. He had conviction because he, 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 as a just man, living by the law, would show mercy to this person. And he was going to divorce her quietly, which would care for her, but also you see how he would care for the baby. Because after all, if he publicly shamed this unwed pregnant teenager, there was not going to be much hope for this child either. No one was going to come, likely, and marry this person. And so we have this picture of this unborn baby and this woman with an unexpected pregnancy. And you see the character of God demonstrated by, by the character of Joseph. He shows love and care for this unborn child and for this woman who is unexpectedly pregnant. I'm going to draw attention to that for just a moment. If you're in this room and you're not a believer, there's probably many things you wonder about what believers are and what they're all about. What, and, and you might even wonder why many Christians tend to advocate for the lives of, unborn, of the unborn. And I want to contend for you because I think this is helpful. And, and I, every time we come across these kinds of things in Scripture, I want to help inform you how the Bible helps us to see the world and to engage in the world, even if it's politically. But I want you to see in this story that it is a false dichotomy to choose between living in a way that loves and honors and cares for the mother and a way that loves and honors and cares for the unborn child. It is a false dichotomy that you have to choose between loving and caring for the unborn and loving and caring for women who are unexpectedly pregnant. That is a false dichotomy authored by Satan himself. And that's the real work of Satan right there, isn't it? And I want you to see that when, when the Scripture gets hold of us, it changes the way we see the world and we see the need of Jesus to enter in and make all things new. And one of the ways Jesus becomes king is he kicks all the other stuff off the throne in your life, including what I would say, I just, this is my concern as a pastor because I love you, probably the thing in, in, on the throne of many people's lives is political ideology. That the way to the good life is their political team. And that's the real work of Satan right there. I could stand up here and talk to you about the value of an unborn life, and you would think I was making a political statement, as though your political party invented that. And I can stand up here and talk about the love for an, a woman who's facing an unexpected pregnancy. And you would think that's somehow a political thing, as though your political party invented that. I could talk to you about the value of unborn lives, of pregnant lives, of black lives, of homeless lives, of 
refugee and immigrant lives. Fill in the blank with the thing that would bother you the most. And you would think that's a political idea, and you would miss. You would miss. Your political party doesn't own those things. Love for those people doesn't stem from that ideology. Do you see it? It stems from the character of God. And God moves toward both Mary and the unborn baby in Joseph with adopting and caring love. And it's beautiful. But just notice that it's sin that makes us have to choose the value of one life or the other. The entrance of sin is what comes in and brings death with it, and we're left to figure out which death is worse or not as bad. And I just want you to realize that's a problem, that's a problem that your political party can't solve. That's a problem, a false dichotomy that sin gives us. And I want you to know that political parties benefit greatly by putting you in one of those two camps. And it will win elections, but they're selling you a lie because they can't solve the problem. They can't solve the awful problem that sin makes us have to choose one life over another. But get this. Did you hear what the baby came to do? Did you get it? He came to save their peop- the, his people from what? From their sin. And so we get this powerful picture through Joseph of what it looks like to love in an adopting and caring way for this for this life that, that had not yet been born, and yet for this woman who needed help. And notice that the, the pain and the trial in this world is to be lamented and grieved, isn't it? But it isn't overcome by choosing the value of one life or an, over another. The pain and trial of this world is overcome by Jesus, who was born into it to deliver us. So, friend... The goal isn't that you would like see the extremes and the polarization in the world and pick some spot in the middle, right? A mix of right and left or a mix of this and that. No, 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 no. The goal is you would see that what God brings in his kingdom through Jesus is so completely different than any kingdom you could imagine. It explodes our views. Our ideology doesn't have room for Jesus. And so we're invited at the very beginning of this story to kick those things off the throne and make room for Jesus to take over. And Joseph, I just want, to, I want you to see this. Joseph gives us a glimpse into something I want to commend to you. That loving Mary, who was unexpectedly pregnant, and loving Jesus, a baby in need of adopting, aren't things you have to choose between. So if you're an unbeliever in this room and you wonder why Christians are so consumed with things like this, I want you to see, this is where it comes from. We're doing our best to commend this character of Joseph reflecting the character, and in this case, the justice of God in the world. So, but as he considered these things, verse 20, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Side note here, isn't it interesting? Um, he found out about the pregnancy before he found out uh, about what happened, right? What a, what a humbling thing to think about, right? The Lord, could have, the Lord could have done that in a different order, right? The Lord could have sent an angel and said, hey, just so you won't freak out, uh, Mary's going to be pregnant, and don't worry, it's the power of the Holy Spirit, and don't fear to marry her, right? Instead, I mean, I, just, I point this out as, as, as an observation, um, that this is sometimes how the Lord works, right? We see the mess. The Lord lets us see the mess and live in the mess, and then comes later to comfort. I don't know why God does that, but notice he does it with Joseph. 
Joseph finds out about the pregnancy long before he finds out what happened. And so it says he was pondering what he would do, how he would, as mercifully as he could, dismiss her. He would lose the bride price, but love her and care for her, hopefully give her a future by, by the choice he was making. And he says, as you considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. I, I'm reading way too much into this text when I think this, but he had, he had, me, he had, he had, he had intentions to, in some ways, be merciful and loving towards Mary. And I like to think, in many ways, he didn't, when it's, that's a nice way of saying it. Like, if I, if I said you were considering things and something came to you in a dream, I read a little bit too much into this, but I don't think it's wrong to think he was not asleep, at least not for long. I don't think it's too far of a stretch to say that Joseph really cared for this woman and was really conflicted, right? Think about, if he was indignant or vengeful, he could have been like, well, I know what I'm going to do, you know, sleep, sleep like a baby. But he said he was pondering and considering these things. I think it's possible Joseph went to bed that night with a broken heart. Either way, it gives us a picture into the character of Joseph. He wasn't just like flippantly doing this. This was weighing on him. He He was debating these things, and that was when the Lord encountered him. Joseph, son of David. Hear that phrase again? Hear that? Hear that picture? The preparation for what this baby would be? And, and, and in many ways, why he, like, that, that's a pretty powerful thing, right? To invoke that. I don't know, maybe if there's a matriarch or patriarch in your family that's like really well known and embodies some sort of a character trait that's really modeled and emulated in your family, but like, that's a big deal, right? It kind of gives you an idea of what's being referred to, right? If I came into it, I was like, you, son of George Washington, right? You'd be like, Right? I'm, 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 making a, I'm making an argument. I'm compelling you. Like, oh, you're right. I guess I ought, hmm, man, I ought, to, I ought to think about you know, where I come from. I'm, I'm, unfortunately, I'm not related to anyone famous like that, so I don't have a good example here. I had to make that one up, right? But imagine someone like you, fame, you know, daughter of famous, influential person. Notice what he does. He's, you, hey, son of David, you get this? Like, don't forget. Don't forget the story I started with your people and your family. Son of David, do not fear. Now, this is interesting. This phrase is all throughout the Bible, and when angels say it, typically they say, don't be afraid, because someone's freaking out because they saw an angel, right? Which is the first thing you should say if you're an angel. That's probably what you say all the time. Read it, do not fear. Okay, you, you know, wait five minutes. All right, are you calm? I can talk now. He doesn't say, do not fear me, or, or like, right? He says, don't fear to take Mary as your wife. Don't worry about what people will say. Don't worry about what people think, because the thing that's going on, that, is, that which is conceived in her is of God. It's of the Spirit of God. She's going to, in verse 21, bear a son, and then you will call his name Jesus. In this name, we learn almost everything we need to know about the Bible, I would say. This name is Jesus, a common and ordinary name, like a Greek derivative of, of what we would have seen as the name Joshua in the Old Testament. It's a very common name. You're going to call him this, but the reason you're going to name him this isn't because it's a common name, but because it literally means that the Lord saves or salvation is of the Lord. Yeshua, Yah or Yeh from like Joshua, the Lord. Remember, even even Joshua's name was Hosea. And then then when when Moses employed him, it changed his name. It's not not an uncommon thing to happen in the Bible that this new purpose and new calling is identified by its name. So he becomes Yehoshua or Joshua. And that the Greek derivative isn't just that he's, uh, right, Shua, a, a, someone who would save, but Yeshua, God would save, Yahweh would save. But the thing that we see here is that 
the thing that Jesus came to save us from might not be the thing we think or wish that it is. It's a common name, the Lord saves, and it's a common desire. You might have felt it, right, like even this morning, Lord, when is this going to be over? When am I going to get out of here? You might even feel it right now. When are we going to get out of here, right? Lord, save. That longing for something better, that longing and desire for something substantive and that would bring contentment and joy and lasting hope, that, that's, a, that's a real desire that you and I carry with us all the time. But notice he, he doesn't say that the Lord's going to save in the way that you think he might. The Lord is going to save you from sin. So a few things I want you to notice here just briefly. Notice that Joseph and Mary aren't allowed to name him. He already has one. They don't give him a name. He's already got one. Because the power of a name points to a few things. One, it points to responsibility. Remember, we're supposed to be thinking about the Old Testament the whole time. What was the first job of, of the first Adam, right, that he failed at? He, he, was, he was going around uh, by God's command and, and naming things. And, and what was his job? To cultivate the garden, to care for it, to be its caretaker and protector. And so to name was a picture of taking responsibility. As if to, in many ways, say, like, this is mine, right? I own this. This is mine from now on. And we see the nature of that name throughout the Bible, right? Abraham only becomes Abram when God comes to Abram and, and says, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to bless the nations through you, right? You see this elsewhere. Jacob becomes Israel because what happened? He wrestled with God and everything changed. He had a new purpose. He was under a new headship, right? You see this in the New Testament. We saw it just a moment ago, like Simon, his name was Simon, and he came to Jesus and said, you're the Christ, the Son of God, and he says, that's not your name anymore. Your name's Petros or Peter, Rock, and on this rock, I'm going to build my church. The gates of hell won't prevail against it. See, do you hear it? He was under, he had a new Lord. He had a new king, and so he had a new name, a new purpose, a new identity. The best one is Apollos, Apollos, right? right? And he encounters Jesus on the road to Damascus, and he becomes Paul. Or excuse me, he's Saul, and he becomes Paulos. And it's really funny because the word, the word Paulos or, or Paul means small or little. This big, well-known man, a Hebrew of Hebrews, right? He lots of reasons to brag, meets Jesus, and he's like, man, you're gonna just call me little. Just call me little guy. But notice Mary and Joseph don't have that authority or power or privilege here, do they? The angel comes and says, look, you're going to have a baby, but make no mistake about it, it's not yours. This baby already has a name because this baby will save people from their sin. God defines these things, they don't. The other things you see, as you kind of see here, is like the, the name of this is, is pretty important for us, is that... Uh, Jesus came to do something here, and we get an understanding of sin that we'll have developed for the rest of the book of Matthew, and then we have an understanding of salvation or saved that we see for the rest of Matthew. That God is doing this. God defines sin and salvation. God does this for his people. And so Matthew begins by defining sin here as the thing that it took the perfect Son of God coming to die on our behalf for to eradicate. Sin was the thing that separated us from God. Sin was the thing that caused the presence of God to vanish. But the reason 
That's the reason that God came to be with us and for us. In verse 23, we find out that's just a fulfillment of a prophecy way back in the day from Isaiah. Virgin will con- the virgin will conceive and bear a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So Jesus came to save us from our sins. I want to hang on that for just a moment before we start to wrap up in this last section of the, of the text. Jesus came to save us from our sin. There might be a lot of things you wish God would change in your life. And yet we find here that the powerful thing, the thing we need the most is the thing we can't do for ourselves, namely to eradicate and remove sin. Sin, that rebellion against God that causes brokenness, death. Sin, the thing that ruins and corrupts and perverts everything. That's what Jesus came to save us from. The wages of sin, we find our death. And those of us who are dead in our trespasses need to be made alive with this one who can come and save us from our sin. And that's important because we saw this in the Gospel of John, that Jesus did not come to make your life better. Jesus came to make your life possible. Jesus didn't come to fix your life. Because of your sin, you don't have one. Because of your sin and mine, we are dead in our trespasses, separated from God, separated from the source of life, joy, and hope. Make no mistake about it, Jesus isn't something that you and I are, are meant to think of as a concept or uh, something we kind of ponder among other things, and you know, maybe I'd love for Jesus to benefit me in this way. A dead person can't weigh options. A dead person doesn't need improvement. A dead person needs to be made alive. And so notice what Jesus came to accomplish, and Matthew wants to make this case for us. The thing that Jesus came to do for us isn't something that, oh, we could get to at one point, you know, if we get the time or the compunction to do it. Jesus came to do for us what we could never do ourselves, to forgive and redeem us from sin. Did you hear the genealogy? Went from Abraham Abraham to David, and David from the exile and exile to the Christ. Did you hear what what he's trying to tell you? The exile is coming to an end. People in exile and in slavery don't need an improvement in life. They need to be set free. And this Jesus came. And you don't get to name him or tell him what you want him to do. He's already got a name. And for us, that's a source of deep joy. Because often he gives to us what we need, even even when we don't want it. In that sense, God is with us, we see here in verse 23. The name and title of Jesus is not just that he will save us, but that he is God with us. Now, I want to draw your attention to this thing. Remember, over 50 times I'm probably going to say this exact same thing, okay? Because Matthew wants you to know this was all predicted. None of this was plan B. This is exactly what God meant to do to restore the world from all time. And so the words you'll hear us say regularly, especially this is important if you're not a believer, we'll talk a lot about how how God fulfills his promises in Jesus, right? He's promised to deliver and restore his people, to redeem them. And we'll say that a lot. We, and so when we get together, we rehearse all the promises that God has, has fulfilled for us in Jesus. Paul tells the Corinthians that all these promises find their yes and amen in Jesus. Well, why do we talk so much about promises and how this was just a promise, verse 23 tells us, that God made centuries before that was fulfilled in Jesus? Why do we talk about promises and God keeping his promises all the time? This is why, because one of the most profound marks of a false God is that it does not deliver what it's promised. It doesn't deliver on its promises. Have you ever noticed that in your life, that thing you want is always just out of reach? 
Have you ever noticed how close you can get to what you really want without ever getting it? Have you ever felt that? Once I get married, then I'll be there and all my problems will go away. And you almost get it. It's almost true. It was so close to being true. And then you're like, man, I just brought a loneliness to a new place. Once I get that job, right, I'll be there. I'll have the status I need. I'll have that sense of satisfaction. People will see me in a new way. And it's just, you almost did, didn't it? It almost worked. Have you ever said that to yourself? Once I get there, once I move to that place, or I get, right, once I get out of this stage of life, or, it's so tempting. And, and in our lives, we look at those things, and, and the Bible calls those idols. They're the things that we try to find the good life in. We think that's the good life. That's where we'll get it. That's when I'll know I'll be, I'll be there, right? I'll, I'll have contentment, joy, and happiness. And oh, we can get so close. And sometimes, you know this, sometimes you convince you actually found it. This is it. This is the only car I'll ever need. <laughs> right? This, this is it. This is the only job I could ever want to have. And for a moment, you can think, I got it. I got the good life. But I just want you to consider for just a moment, the reason we talk about God fulfilling his promises is to remind us that it's actually his mercy when those things you long for and, and look, to hope, look to hope in and trust in in your own life, it's actually God's mercy when those things fail. And this might not be the case, but it's possible that your current despair is a good, we call it, like, we call it the right kind of atheism. There's a good kind of atheism that comes when you stop believing in false gods. There's this moment where you're an atheist, right before you see God for who he is, is the God who fulfills our promises in Jesus. And so I just want to comfort you at the very least. Maybe you're in a position where like, you're, you, it's miserable, right? Your life is miserable, and, and you're really wishing something would happen and really fix it. And maybe it'll happen, and maybe it'll feel great. But I just want you to know that despair you're in might actually be God's mercy, it might actually be God's kindness to you for you to stop looking to something that will never satisfy you and hear the predicted words of Isaiah so that we begin to see like, oh, now I know why that failed. Only God keeps his promises. He makes us alive, fills our, fulfills our deepest desires. But here's the last thing. It isn't just that God came to be with us. That's amazing. That's powerful. God gives us his life-giving presence in Jesus. He comes in and literally brings life and, and then brings life for his people that were dead in their sin. And it's a profound paradox, isn't it? The infinite creator of the universe called his mom on Mother's Day. Right? Like, the infinite creator of the universe had a mom. Think about it this way. God delights to stoop down into the impossible places. God likes it. It's what he loves to do. God delights to enter miraculously into improbable and even impossible circumstances. All the places in your life and mine where we would think, there's no way God could fix that. There's no way God would touch that. Even when we look in the mirror and think, there's no way God would love or care for that. The story reminds us of the life-giving presence of Jesus and how God delights to stoop into the impossible places to bring hope. 
Have you ever said that? There's no way God cares about me. There's no way God would love me. I have good news for you that Matthew wants you to hear. I have a mystery I want you to believe by faith. The God of the universe celebrated Mother's Day. He had a mom. And if the infinite creator of the universe would lower himself to be born of a human and call her on Mother's Day, then there is no place in your life and mine to which God's grace and presence won't extend because of Christ. No place. Here's another one. We get a picture of life coming in through unbelievable circumstances. Mary gives birth to the Savior of the world. And it's a picture, I believe, of what you and I as Christians can begin to do as we bring the life-giving gospel of Jesus to the world. Let me speak for a moment, carefully, show me grace, to pregnant moms. Right? It, that's, a, that's, a, that's a serious thing. And so many of you who, who have been in that, in that situation in a variety of different circumstances know what I'm talking about. But it's, it's, a, it's a difficult and painful thing. That's why, again, that's why Mother's Day will always be a bigger deal than Father's Day. Just, that's, just, that's not from the Bible, that's just me, right? But there's something strange happens, I apologize, pregnant mother, when a pregnant woman walks into the room, my apologies, please, she becomes invisible. She disappears. When a, when a pregnant woman walks into the room, everyone's eyes go to her belly. Now, I don't see it as much, but some of you women I, I know would testify to this. People will come up and touch that belly. Like, don't do that, okay? I mean, just don't, just don't be touching people's bellies in general, I, don't, I think. Seems like a good axiom. Why would they do that? Because there's something miraculous there. And we want to touch it. We're like, oh my goodness, what is, right? I don't, I don't even, my, my mind's blown by what I'm seeing here. And again, I apologize, mothers. You know that's like, you disappear. Now, I think that's becoming less and less okay. I wouldn't condone that. But I at least want to affirm that there's something powerful and mysterious going on that people can't stop looking at. In every room Mary walked into, she was pregnant with Jesus. She delivered Jesus into the world. What a mystery. I believe you and I, by God's grace, are invited into that same divine miracle and mystery. That every room we might walk into, we deliver Jesus. Such that we would disappear. And people would see us and go like, I, I, want, I, I don't know what that is. I somehow inappropriately want to draw close to that thing, Right? Isn't that what it means when the New Testament tells us that in Christ we are hidden in him? We disappear. Holy smokes, I want to touch that, right? Lastly, I want to give encouragement to the ordinary. Jesus enters with an ordinary name in a fairly unremarkable way to unfamous people, unknown people. And I want to encourage you with that because it may, even in your own life, seem like there's no way... God will work or do something powerful and life-giving because it's not impressive enough. Because after all, this doesn't, with a common name, this doesn't seem like a very oppressive place to find life and hope. But I want to turn that on its head for just a moment as we consider what God did here in Jesus. You might look around and maybe, maybe you're new to getting to know people of Connection Church and I, I promise you, just like the book of Acts, you probably find them to be very unimpressive. Like this church is not that impressive. This can't be a way that I'll experience new life and new hope. 
Maybe you're looking around. This, is not, this, this doesn't seem like an impressive enough place that we would gather and experience new life and new hope. You know, maybe, maybe we said this building isn't stupendous enough to experience new life and new hope and find deep meaning. You might even be saying this, this isn't even a particularly impressive sermon, right? Yeah, probably right. But that's how the Lord works. That's just it. Because today, if you hear the good news that the Lord loves to take up the time and the space of the ordinary, then you would experience the mystery of this name, God with us. Stop trying to name Jesus. He's already got one. And he will make his way into your life the same way he made his way into this world. Unimpressively. It will seem ordinary. And yet nothing will be the same after. I know for many of you, that's even what you're contending with. Many of you are pursuing membership. One of the hardest things to do is to write a story of grace, to tell the story of, essentially of Matthew, of, of like how we met Jesus. And here's the biggest temptation. I tell people in membership class, and nobody listens, I'll just keep saying it. Don't try to write an impressive story. Or, here just know, if you're having a problem writing an impressive story of how you experience grace in your life, it's because you're writing it about the wrong person. You're trying to write it about you. Friend, you're ordinary. You're, you're normal. You are unimpressive, which is what is so impressive about God's love for you and me, so that we can recount the story of God coming to stoop down and delighting to take the place of the ordinary, obscure, in order to bring life. And that's glorious. I want to break through all the nostalgia and sentimentality of Christmas. Enjoy all those things. But think of it this way. Christmas, as one writer puts it, is a medicine chest full of everything we need to be made whole. And if God is with us, then there's nothing in this world that will prevail over us. But get this. It's not just that God is with us. It's that he'll never lead us. He'll never leave us. If you were paying attention, when I showed you the last couple of verses of Matthew, I redacted. You might not have noticed. It was pretty unbiblical of me. But here's the phrase I left out. It's at the very end. Right after he sends them off to make disciples, to baptize, and to teach to obey, what does he say? I'm never going to leave you. Behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. In a moment, we get to experience that profound mystery. We're going to stand up and sing, and we believe that God will actually inhabit our praise and grant us joy through it. But then we're going to respond by not just hearing the gospel, but seeing as we share communion with one another. And we'll behold a mystery, a little wafer and, and juice that might otherwise make a very unsatisfying snack will become deep soul nourishment for us. It will seem incredibly ordinary, if not even disappointing. And yet a mystery happens. God keeps his promise. The baby born into the world takes our place his body broken, his blood shed for our sin, to take it all away. And when he comes back, it isn't to exact vengeance. It's to invite us to meet with him at a table. Let's pray. God, thank you so much. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that you are merciful to us even when we don't deserve it. Thank you that you use ordinary means. You use characters like Joseph and Mary and 
You use their faithfulness to display your character. You use a list of obscure and sinful people to invite us to be adopted into the family that you've created for us from the beginning. God, even now, if there's some in this room that that seems like a mystery too great to believe, would you grant them the gift of faith? Might even today they cry out to you? Help us to stop trying to name you or comprehend you. Help us to stop trying to rule over you or to tell you what you are. Help us to instead receive you by faith. Help us to realize that you have a name, and that name is to grant to us the reconciliation and redemption of our deep of our souls and the deepest desires of our hearts. Maybe for some of us, we've just seemed to love and worship lesser things. Would you even now begin to show us how glorious you are? Help us to renounce the the pursuit of excellence or impressiveness and instead receive the gift that you delight to love and care for sinners, the simple, the impossible, the improbable. Thank you for showing us that impossible love in Jesus Christ. Help us now to respond in faith, for it's in Jesus' name that we look and pray and sing. Amen.